proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am your host, joined today by the pastor of New Life Church in Middlesbrough, England. That's right, I'm in the UK. I have been here for a few days now and just getting to know Ian Williamson. Ian, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. Aaron, how are you? Doing very well. Glad you'd be willing to be on this podcast and just share a little bit of your own knowledge regarding church planting. Um, before we get to that, why don't you just share a little bit briefly of your own testimony? Yeah, uh, I became a Christian around 2003 uh, when I was working as a nightclub bouncer in uh, northeast of England, UK. I had um, a number of issues. I was addicted to drugs. I was in debt. I was struggling with relationships. I was feeling suicidal. And uh, one night when I, I felt like ending it all, I had an argument in my family home and pulled out a knife and threatened to kill myself. And my mum told me that Jesus could help me. And my first response was, what's he going to do? Is he going to write me a check for £40,000? How can Jesus help me uh, with my life? But she shared how God had helped her. Uh, and I looked at her life since she'd become a Christian and seen how her life had changed and how content she was and how happy she was. And, and it started me thinking. And I didn't become a Christian that night, but over the coming weeks and months, uh, the thought of, Jesus helping me came to mind and one night I just cried out to him and I just said, Lord, if you're there, then then I'll follow you. The way I've been living my life now is 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 going nowhere. So uh, you're my last hope. If you can't help me, then I'm going to end it. And I just remember falling asleep weeping. And when I woke up the next morning, my life was still a mess, but I had a hope that I never had before. Uh, I knew that my life uh, needed sorting out but instead of having one giant mountain that I couldn't climb it felt like I had lots of little molehills that I could deal with one at a time and I don't know just looking out the window there was no like doves or rainbows or anything but the life uh, the world seemed brighter uh, my life seemed to have purpose and that was the start of a very long journey in, in uh, meeting with Jesus and becoming a Christian and then turn my life around. What year was that that you would say you came to the, came to the faith? I'd say it was 2003 where I cried out to God, where I said I wanted to follow him. And that started a journey of me uh, going to several churches in the area, uh, some of which I walked in and I just felt like an outsider from the start. People didn't really know how to deal with me. I was a 20 stone skinhead. <laughs> with, uh, 20 stones, you got to help my uh, <laughs> listeners out. What's, a, what, what's that? How much? About 125 kilos or something like that. So <laughs> I was... I was an angry man. I didn't realise I was an angry man, but I was quite intimidating at the time. So I can imagine a few people avoided me, not out of want of help, but out of fear, probably. But uh, nevertheless, I struggled to find someone to disciple me, to show what being a Christian meant to uh, to a man like me who's working class, who has addictions, who has anger problems. And I spent a number of years uh, trying to make sense of the Bible, not finding anybody to explain the Bible well to me. And I'd say it was probably... 
from 2003, I got married in 2005. I was in and out of different churches, but it probably wasn't uh, till around 2007 that I really understood that Jesus wasn't a fairy godmother to come and <laughs> fix my problems and just to give me hope. But uh, Jesus isn't just a saviour, but he's Lord. And that was when I realised that I needed to follow him and submit to him. And that's when I saw my life really impacted and changed. Now, clearly it sounded like your mom was able to point you to Jesus. Tell us a little bit just about your upbringing in the sense of religious training. I hate to use that term, but I know it's a term that, that they use here in the UK. There's, a, there's actually classes on religious education in the schools. So you obviously, um, coming from a country that has a rich heritage, and I'll use the word heritage, um, but currently is not so, uh, so uh, um, uh, faithful to that heritage. But why don't you share a little bit about that regarding your background? Yeah, so I, I, I originally went to a Church of England school and every morning we would pray in assembly, we would sing hymns. Uh, once a week the, the local vicar would come into school and give you religious instruction. We would learn about all the Christian festivals. We would attend the, the local church. I uh, My favourite book was the children's uh, Bible stories and I used to love looking at the illustrations and and I remember uh, the story about Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and writing on the walls and, and things like that. The, the illustrations were awesome and, and got me really into the, the Word of God. And uh, that always stayed with me, even though I wasn't a believer and my mum and dad weren't religious. I believed in God and knew there was a God. At school, up until the age of about uh, 13, uh, pretty good religious instruction within the RE lessons, but... I, I, before I left school, uh, the government and, and schools were withdrawing more and more from uh, teaching about Christianity. First of all, it started by spending more time explaining other religions and then less and less time looking at religion and looking at people's uh, beliefs in sexuality and no faiths and new age. And just more and more it became liberal teaching and uh, more recently I was working in education which I was asked to go into to do RE lessons and and and, and basically you were you, you would struggle to be able to preach the gospel you could say what people believe and what people do but actually explain the gospel who Jesus is you're, you're very limited and I know many young men some men that I'm working with their experience of of RE lessons was being shown uh, films of ghost and looking at the afterlife <laughs> and uh, but you, you mean like Patrick, <coughs> Patrick Swayze the ghost yeah 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 so basically uh, kids saw religious education as two hours of boredom before uh, they were taught nothing and they left school knowing nothing and uh, and, and still now many people are very unfamiliar I mean I, I worked in a college as, as the college chaplain nobody knew what a chaplain was and when I said it was a bit like a minister, they said, do you mean a vicar? I said, yeah. And they said, oh, so what do you do as a vicar? Uh, isn't that someone who, who marries you and buries you? And that's the limit. That's the extent of their knowledge of what Christianity is. You get somebody who wears a dress and buries you and, wow. <laughs> and marries you. But a marriage and marriage is, 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 less, is less common. Uh, sorry, is, 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 yeah, is less common in, in, in the area where we live. And, and I think funerals are pretty much... The only place you'd expect to see a man of religion really is burying somebody. Wow. Now that ob that obviously explains 
the need for churches in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's heavy on your heart. I know that you wouldn't say you're the only gospel minister yeah. over here. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been clear to say that there are other men preaching, uh, preaching the cross. But clearly there is an epidemic here yeah. in regards to um, the gospel going forth. And again, I just want to reflect on the rich heritage, yeah, yeah. you know, that the Reformation movement here in England was was something that was a very good and necessary thing. But today, five over 500 years later, it's yeah. void. And so there's definitely a need to plant churches. So why don't you take us on a journey just as you started the process of wrestling with a calling to be a church planner and then introduce us a little bit to the church that you planted. Yeah, so this country isn't Christian, regardless of its history. This country is secular, uh, very much secular. Uh, religion is, is, I mean, people are getting prosecuted left, right and centre for for wearing crosses, for talking about Jesus, for even saying that they'd pray for somebody. A nurse was recently sacked for saying that she would pray for a, a patient. Um, so, so, yeah, the, the country is far from Christian. Estimates are that 3% of the population are Christian, and that is a very generous uh, estimate. And that includes people of all denominations, whether you'd class them as uh, born-again believers is, is questionable. That's just anyone who goes to church, regardless of how often they attend or not. So, for me... I was just aware of how, uh, as a white working class male who uh, came from a, a background of addiction and of uh, violence and of uh, single parent families and, and, and poverty, there was very little Christianity. Uh, there was very little uh, exposure to the gospel. Pretty much what I, I, I found was, even when I, when I got saved, I could not find any discipleship anywhere. I used to share some of my struggles with, with, with people and they used to think I needed deliverance and <laughs> and they'd run a mile. And, and one pastor actually said to me that uh, one of the reasons that some people would avoid me was because uh, they didn't know how to disciple because they were never discipled themselves. So say if I was discussing struggling with masturbation or uh, pornography or having sex before marriage, a lot of people couldn't challenge me or encourage me because they were struggling with similar things and hadn't been discipled in that area themselves. And a lot of them found my uh, honesty off-putting and uh, frightening, to be honest. So <laughs> I, I was desperate. I, I knew I was a sinner. Uh, I was struggling with sin. I knew the sin was wrecking my life. And uh, this new life I found with Jesus, I didn't want ruining. So I was desperate to find a man I could be accountable to, I could be discipled by. And it just seemed that I was facing uh, rejection after rejection after rejection. So let me just say that that story there reminds me a lot of what you hear about uh, Martin Luther and right. the stories that he'd wear out his, his confessors <laughs> yeah. as he would go through every nuance of his sin, whether how gross or how how uh, minuscule in the eyes of the one he was who was hearing his confession. Yeah. And obviously out of him comes a reformation and so i truly believe reformation starts in the heart yeah, yeah, yeah. and and what you what i can see and know of you i see that same spirit a man who has been broken but now the lord has been rebuilding as you wrestled with this idea of 
this need and your own your own struggles, there's probably a billion things that went through your mind that you weren't sufficient or you shouldn't be called to do this work. Yeah. So kind of step us through that process as that began to develop. So the first the first calling was uh, I, I developed a, a charity called 68.5 based on Psalm 68 verse 5. Uh, that's where God says that he is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows and being raised in a fatherless family, not only was I fatherless in an earthly sense, as a Christian I found myself being fatherless in a spiritual sense and I was desperate for a spiritual father to guide me and disciple me. And uh, when I finally found a man who had discipled me, had in, encouraged me in the Lord, I realised there was a need for other young men from my background to be discipled. So this charity was an opportunity to first reach young men from council estates, uh, which is where the majority of the poor live on a council estate, uh, and where the majority of the fatherless live. So my first, and where there's no churches. So these areas are, are, are classed as men deserts because 60% uh, of families are without fathers, but also the, the gospel deserts. There's All the churches have shut down. There's no churches uh, ministering to or reaching out to the communities in these areas. So I wanted to go and be a godly male presence uh, encouraging people with the gospel, uh, reaching them with the gospel, and then when they get saved, discipling them. And many people would say, "Well, if people get saved, what church would you send them to?" Because I was travelling ten miles to a church, and I was like, "Well, I'd love to have loads of converts <laughs> to struggle and find a church yeah. for. Let me cross that bridge when I come to it." And after a couple of years, uh, we found out that we'd come to that bridge. People were getting saved, and we had nowhere to send them to. So I contacted Acts Twenty Nine. I spoke to Steve Timmis and I said, Steve, we need to see a church planted in Middlesbrough. And he said that the area had been highlighted as a, a gospel priority area, yet they were struggling to find people to go and plant in areas like Middlesbrough and that maybe I should think about planting myself. And I was like, well, what does a dumb kid from Middlesbrough know about church planting? And uh, I was struggling to lead my own family, never mind lead a church. <laughs> and uh, I was put off by it. But Steve was, was gracious. Uh, and another man, Hugo Charteris from A29, uh, gave me 10 minutes to share at a conference in Wales. And uh, that was when I met a man called Mes McConnell. And uh, he introduced me to a few other urban church planters. And that started a relationship between me and Mes. And Mes has discipled me and helped to train me as a church planter. And, and really support us in so many ways from financially to practically, but most importantly is, is like a spiritual father and mentor really. So that was what started us on the journey to, to church planting. Uh, purely by chance, we planted in an unorthodox way, in a way that I would never encourage anybody else to plant. It was just me, my wife and my two children. Uh, and we struggled and uh, took on more than we could chew, but God is gracious, he's blessed us through our mistakes. And now we have a small church of 12 members with an average attendance of 25 people, which is uh, quite small, but significant in the area we're at. And we're just praying that God will raise up more godly indigenous converts to reach out to the community. And we're starting to see fruit from five years of intense uh, prayer, <laughs> intense relationship building, and uh, just blessings from God, really. That's incredible. Um I want to talk a little bit about Middlesbrough. I'm here. You've been taking me on tours. Um, I've saw some incredible things as I've walked around the streets of, of this 
as you call it, the borough. And mm-hmm. uh, you even got to go to a, a football match, a real football match, and uh, Middlesbrough won. Yeah. So that's uh, three mm-hmm. to one. I guess that doesn't happen very often. No, no. So no. I got a taste <laughs> of the, the local the local people. Yeah. Um, I want to help my audience to understand the context mm-hmm. that you're planning in. Um, you've used um, some descriptions already uh, and. And I want to kind of begin to define our terms so they can really understand the difficulty of what's happening here in the UK. Yeah. And so let's let's talk a little bit first about Middlesbrough so they get a taste of that. But then let's move into the discussion of of the the, the uniqueness of the struggle here mm. in England. Yeah. So the town didn't exist a couple of hundred years ago. It was just a marshland with a few villages scattered around it. And then in the 1800s, iron ore was discovered, which led to uh, steel production and uh, railroads and bridge building and shipbuilding. And we were became a large port, which uh, became the, the main port of call for all the coal that was produced in the area. And it was a thriving industrial town. Petrochemical uh, operations were happening in the area, uh, oil refinery, all kinds of things like that. So it was described as an infant Hercules because it was a town that grew overnight and it was thought to be the next regional powerhouse. Uh, yet in the 1900s, uh, the world suffered like depressions and, and then back in the 70s, there were strikes and, and privatisations and and the town was, was regarded as a tough place with tough men who worked hard and played hard. And in the 70s and 80s, the industry was ripped out the heart of the community. Many people lost their jobs uh, skilled workers left to find employment and what was left was uh, the first generation of several generations of unemployment. Uh, Many, many marriages broke up. Uh, We started to see a rise in drug abuse and alcohol abuse uh, and hopelessness. Fatherless families became more popular than than families with fathers and three and four generations of unemployment and poverty and Middlesbrough is now being ranked as one of the worst places in England to live. It, It has... Um, higher percentage of knife crime, of, of drug deaths, of suicides, as teenage pregnancies. Every we top the league, league on percentage of, of the worst things that could happen uh, to young people and families uh, and poverty. And uh, it's about the only thing we, we do well at is, <laughs> is, is suffering, really. One of the things that you have shared with me is that the system is created now in in Middlesbrough is a perfect picture of it where the young are almost paid to do nothing. And um, because there isn't work, they get a government stipend, they can get in their own house about 17 years old to live in. Um, Girls are, in in a sense, encouraged to have children because there's extra funds Mm -hmm. (laughs) that are made available for them in that regard. And as you said, some of these girls just want to have a friend, so they'll get pregnant in purpose mm. to have that friend because they're mm. so lonely. They've come from such um, broken backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, even in my travel over here from uh, London you know, up to Middlesbrough, the train got stopped mm. because somebody had jumped in front of one of the trains in front of us, which yeah. you explained was a common thing, mm-hmm. that, that suicide is a very high rate here. Mm-hmm. And these are things that began to really open my eyes to the need um, in England, obviously, but specifically Middlesbrough. Um, what are you? Th- what would? How would you describe um, this understanding of the what I'll call 
a tension in the classes, mm. um, the class system. Um, in America, that seems very foreign to us. We have our own issues, and we have a lot of them. But um, the class system, well, we, we can kind of relate, and I can kind of relate. We talk about a middle class and the upper class. Mm-hmm. But the way you talk about it is, is very different in a lot of ways than the way I understand in my American context. So could you explain that a little bit? First of all, it's just sad that we used to have, it was bad enough when it was upper class, middle class, and working class. But now there's a few more classes added to this. And, 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 and from working class, we look at, the working class used to be classed as the poor. The poor used to be in employment. Now the poor are unemployed. Um, there's, there's, there's very little, if at all, any aspiration. Uh, what we find is even the criminals, basically, they don't aspire to, to make a fortune out of crime. They just look to get by day from day. There's no career criminals. Uh, there's no uh, young people with ambition. It's gone from welfare entitlement to welfare expectation children are expected to finish school early without qualifications expected to sign on to the dole and get unemployment benefits and get the house paid for and make any income through illegal activities or fiddling benefits many people uh, don't don't plan on moving out of the area they just stay on the same estate that they're born, uh, born into and probably would live in a council house next door to the mother or the mother-in-law and very, very little aspiration at all. People would not think of uh, training because a lot of the training that is offered leads to a qualification that isn't worth the paper it's wrote on. Uh, Basically, education is seen as a holding pen till you sign on the dole. Uh, Basically, it's keeping a lot of kids off the street and is more of a social service for keeping the the street safe than an education provider. Uh, if a child is, is able, is academic, and wants to work hard in a school, uh, it's very often that the child would be seen as a geek or a nerd and, and would be bullied for, for trying hard. Uh, so a lot of kids with ability uh, are not working hard. Teachers are stressed. Teachers are struggling there trying to be social workers and uh, carers <laughs> and and. and the priority for some of these kids is if they turn up to... One of the biggest problems I had was I worked in a school and some child would be uh, witnessing the mum getting beat up, uh, seeing the mum high on drugs, will be hungry, will have a dirty uniform because the mum had not cleaned the clothes and would turn up to school. The fact that they got to school on time was an achievement coming from the chaos that that child had left. Uh, the pain that he was carrying from seeing his mum being assaulted and then he'd walk in and the teacher would pull him up because he's forgotten his tie. Do you know what I mean? And, that, and the kids would then kick off because he doesn't care about a tie. He's He struggled just to get to school and there's so much pain and there's so much struggle. There's, there's so much social problems with these students when they're getting into the school that the teachers spend all the time trying to manage behaviour or manage emotions or, or, or social problems that they don't have time to educate. Uh, and then the government send in inspectors and then the school gets failed so the pressure gets on the teachers that they've got to stop caring for the kids and then they'll get excluded and it just starts a vicious circle of, of kids um, seeing school as a place of uh, a negative authority where they're going to face more struggle, more abuse, more intimidation and, and, and so they just become anti-school, anti-education. 
Ian, you said uh, a couple of things that I want to go back and define our terms on. The first was the idea of an estate. And I'm not sure my listeners fully grasp what you mean by estate. I mean, when when we think of England, we automatically think of Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> and so, okay, we get the idea of a manor or whatever, and, and we understand we've seen through Downton Abbey lens. I'm probably like the only one listening, watching Downton Abbey, and that's only with my wife. If you're not a good husband, you, you should be watching that with your wife, right? But um, when you watch and you see those shows, you see a working class, and it gives you an idea of at least what it looked like you know, in that era. But I'm not sure that's what you mean at all. And so I want you to help translate that for your American audience who only looks at everything through the lens of Hollywood and help us understand when you say working class and you say estate, what are you referring to? Yeah, well, firstly, a a housing estate, a council estate, probably translated would be the hood or the ghetto. It's a place of where the urban power would live, a place where... uh, Fathers would be absent, where crime would be high, uh, where drug and alcohol abuse would be prevalent. And it is uh, a place that is tough, a place that is hard, but on a positive side, it's also a place of extreme loyalty, uh, dark senses of humour, places of community. And uh, in Middlesbrough, places of identity, uh, there's an extreme pride in the poverty in Middlesbrough. It's, it's, It's funny, but... Yeah, Middlesbrough, with its people who come from Middlesbrough are fighters. And uh, we used to work hard and and play hard. And now I think we just um, work hard to get through life, to be honest. A lot of people are fighting extreme disadvantage and uh, a lot of hopelessness. A lot of people are seeing uh, Hollywood, are seeing uh, movies and Facebook and all kinds of social media of uh, get rich quick and living a party life. So people live day by day. Uh, they don't think long term. They don't think about pensions. They don't think about old age or health. They think about how can my day bring pleasure and comfort. And uh, if you can get through the day, you'll worry about tomorrow when that comes. So basically, uh, most people's attitude are living on a short term plan rather than a long term plan. Uh, working class. People still describe themselves as a working class, but not many of the working class are working these days. So we've been, it's, it's a bit of an insult, but we've been described as an underclass. People on long-term benefits have been on benefits. Uh, I know it's like the, the humiliation to stand in a job queue and, 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 and go and choose five jobs that you've applied for, knowing that you won't even get the jobs anyway, but you've got to do it to get your benefits. Um, yeah, and a, and a queue is a line. A queue is a line. I, yeah, I yeah. learned that one already. A queue is a line. <laughs> yeah, a queue is a line, and uh, it's a line where you stand there. You you just you're just embarrassed. You look that you you called in by number, not by name. It's just it's just humiliating, and I think a lot of people are used to uh, that humiliation of relying on other people to pay for you to live and uh, self esteem. And I know life isn't built on self esteem, but when you see grown men who apologise for having a job. Uh, you met a guy today who was almost apologetic that he worked as a carer, uh, caring for people with disabilities because it's not seen as a man's job. So lots of people with pride would not work and not provide for the family. Uh, and, and you may be seen as a lesser man for working in the care industry, but this guy was apologetic for providing for his family. And it's a sad state of affairs if you have to apologise for going out and earning a few quid to provide and feed your family. It's sad. 
Act 29 has started a new initiative with uh, Mez McConnell and Doug Logan called Church in Hard Places. Mm -hmm. You obviously fit that model, and you are one of the few church planters in England that are specifically working in in a hard place, hard-to-reach places. I know you're not a big fan of mm. Tim Keller's book, Center Church. <laughs> it, do, it teaches the exact opposite of yeah. what you think um, where, where churches need to be planted, if I could say it that way. Yeah. Um, we'll leave that for another discussion <laughs> on another day. Um, but I do want to talk specifically about the idea of, of the initiative of Church in Hard Places, but specifically looking at it through the lens of the pastor or the planner. Mm. And what is it to plant a church in, in a very deprived setting like you're describing to my listeners? First thing I, I want to say is it's long term. Uh, if you're coming here, any hard place, whether you be in Goa in India, whether you be in Detroit, whether you be in uh, the townships of South Africa or the favelas of Brazil or in Middlesbrough in England, it's going to be a long term. Where we, we can't just walk into a community and expect people to to listen to what we have to say about Jesus. We've got to move to a community, live there, and uh, build relationships and earn respect before we can preach about Jesus. Uh, so that's the first thing you've got to do. You've got to be willing to bed in long term and uh, work hard and pray hard and expect little fruit and spend a lot of money. It's an expensive thing because... There's very little community buildings you can use, so everything happens in your home. So you're looking, you're feeding people, you're watering people. Uh, you've got to be inventive and find uh, places to meet. Uh, rent a hall. You, you, it, it's difficult. We don't have our own building, so we have uh, met in several buildings. As as a church has grown, it brings more expense. Whereas a middle class church or large churches in the US, if you go from uh, zero to 50 you then get a salary if I go from zero to 50 I need money to pay more staff because discipleship is 24 7 in hard places you can't meet somebody on a Sunday and say I'll see you on Wednesday for a Bible study then see them again on a Sunday people are struggling with addictions people are struggling with homelessness people are in abusive relationships people are, are struggling with crime and and they need support 24-7. You can't do it uh, week by week. It's got to be day by day. That's a great topic that I, I want to dig a little deeper into. This idea of the type of people you're ministering to are not going to be able to necessarily immediately tithe to <laughs> to uh, pay your salary. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a sense in which even after the conversion and the heart change, it's still a money issue. Mm-hmm. Um and sure, there's something they can give, but it would take a, an astronomic uh, number mm. for them to uh, of them to assemble to be able to pay enough to support a pastor, let alone the workers for the harvest that maybe are needed, yeah. as as to reach the entire um, borough that you're hoping to to reach. As as you look at that, there's some other problems. Mm that you've described to me, um, what, talking to your family and the number of people that have had to sleep on your couch, the fact that your doorbell gets uh, rung at uh, wee hours of the morning, um, the fact that um, the people that you're helping 
they don't have the typical skills even necessarily a routines like you're describing because the homes they grew up in, they, they don't know what structure and order looks like. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things that are working against you as a planter. And I don't want to describe these. I want to hear from you. But these are things that I'm picking up as, as you're allowing me to peek into your ministry here. But speak to those, those, those difficulties so that, again, those who are listening can really grasp what church in hard places and is different, how it's different than uh, planting in the suburbs. First of all, we're looking at people to submit to Jesus and submit to an authority of the church, which authority is a swear word in, in hard places. Uh, people of authority would be seen as oppressors, uh, and generally they are. Uh, teachers teachers have a hard job at the best of times but in hard places you know what they're under so much pressure uh, I think so many teachers go into the the occupation want their teach students and they end up like you say doing everything but teach uh, the same with the police as well and I'm not I'm not blaming police and I'm not blaming teachers but what I'm saying is people in the, in, in the hard places get a raw deal and authority is more oppressive than it is helping uh, if you were suffering a crime, the last person you phone is a policeman. You try and do everything you can else before you phone the police because they're the enemy and you're seen as aggressive if you phone the police. So to then say that you come under the authority of the church, people just re- people hate authority, whether you're middle class or upper class, <laughs> but working class, even more so. And uh, yet, so discipleship d- doesn't come easy. And uh, I think there's just that rejection of submitting to someone like Jesus, we, we want to be in control of our lives. And uh, even if the control that we have is destructive, at least we're in control. And I think because we've been under the influence of other people, as soon as you reach adulthood, a poor person wants to try and get some control. So what I, the biggest struggle I find is people um, just handing their life over to Jesus and, and, and following the Bible and uh, <laughs> living, living godly lives. And uh, the only way that'll come is by people living and working alongside them and modeling that. Um, there's so many other struggles, really. There's, uh, if you've got a, a doctor whose main sin is watching pornography in the privacy of his own room, if he falls and, and, and slips up and sins with some pornography, he goes back to work the next day, his wife might not even find out and he might repent and he doesn't even tell his pastor. The people that we're dealing with when they're sin, they usually sin publicly and it's usually in a big way. If our drug addicts fall back into sin, the likelihood is they're going to overdose and die. If uh, people fall back into sexual sin, the likelihood they're going to get somebody pregnant or become pregnant, and we've seen that, you see. And what happens is when we get public sin, we have to deal with it publicly in church discipline. And again, repentance and uh, having to repent publicly is difficult. So often uh, people don't repent and come back. People will fail to repent and, and go away and see that as a rejection so it's difficult it's difficult to uh, when you're a small church and and i know in america small churches are like 100 200 people in in england a small church is 12 people and when when we've struggled to get up to 20 people and then you've got to excommunicate four people the temptation is there just to oh we just won't deal with that sin this week because our ego is looking at numbers uh, but I'd rather have a, a church of five people who love Jesus and follow Jesus than have a church of 100 people who were just running and mocking the community because if our churches aren't built on built on the sound foundation of God's word and 
uh, and people loving Jesus and following him, then then we're just setting ourselves up to fail, aren't we? So there's that temptation that I have to to quantify my work in numbers, uh, but I'm called to preach the gospel, and uh, it's Jesus's job, the Holy Spirit's job to to build the church, to convert, to convict, and if I'm faithful with the word of God and faithful with leading the flock, then I, and I trust God will be faithful in building his church. Speaking as a supporting church of, of various church plants, I know that the typical model for most supporting churches is, well, okay, we'll support you for a certain number of years. Mm. Uh, and the expectation is that you'll become self-sufficient and, and be running. Again, this is another dilemma yeah. in hard, hard places. Mm-hmm. But this isn't the only dilemma you face. You also face the idea of raising up leaders mm-hmm. and and the training for those leaders because a lot of them don't have the proper quote unquote credentials mm. that is necessary to be a leader in the church. Um, and I know that you're working through a lot of these and you found unique ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share any of those specifically in, in the sense of how to raise up leaders that aren't going to fit the typical mold mm-hmm. of, of uh, leaders in the church? that we would look at in the middle class or in suburbia? Yeah, so I, I suppose I would be one of those uh, people who do not fit the typical mold of, of, of elder or leader or pastor or even planter. And you could maybe call me an accidental planter because... Uh, the name of your next book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or the Joker. But I, I don't know, but... You know what? Jesus has, has put a calling on my life. He's put a, a, a mission in my heart to reach the lost, to reach... Um, you know, Paul speaks about how his heart breaks for the Roman... Uh, for, it's not for the Romans, for the uh, for the Jews, for his brothers who um, are rejecting the gospel. And uh, my heart breaks for the people of Middlesbrough and uh, my desire, as much as I want to... How, how, <laughs> I suppose it's like an addiction. I want to leave, but I can't. <laughs> so I think I think I've been put in a position. Uh, I've been blessed by being one of the people I'm trying to reach. Uh, so I've been given the advantage of of having so many doors open for me uh, in my local community. But I feel so many doors have been closed to me in the Christian community. I felt rejection. I felt that because I was an academic, I, I studied a theology course and. And I was failing courses, not because of my lack of knowledge, but because I didn't know how to set out a bibliography or how wide my margin should be on an assignment or the, I had the wrong font or my grammar was wrong. And flipping heck, I'm, I didn't join the ministry to get a, a degree. I joined the ministry to see souls saved, to see people's lives transformed, to be, see people saved from from uh, the just condemnation and wrath of God. I want to see people... Uh, Praising Jesus, I want to see God glorified. I don't want to see a certificate on my wall. I, I value uh, theological training. I think it's it's essential, especially in our communities, because our communities, the churches that thrive, uh, a heretical gospel, uh, false gospel, wealth, health, prosperity churches, because they're coming in and telling people a lie that people want to believe. And uh, that's one of our biggest problems, the God Channel and... Uh, False, false gospels. Uh, so we need to give people robust theological training, but we need to do it in a style and in a way that suits their context. Not being academic doesn't mean you're thick. Some of the brightest con artists <laughs> are brought up in our communities. They they are clever. They can they can make money out of nothing, and uh, 
we can teach them to preach we can teach them to lead churches but we need to do it in a way that suits their learning style rather than the traditional middle class academic way that we're doing seminaries and bible teaching and preaching because we don't want them to have to leave their context no i think that's just to point back to a phrase you use, the God, the God channel. Yeah, yeah. That's like our TBN. I take it. Uh, Prosperity sure. Gospel Central. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you, I mean, if you put your hand on the TV screen and you send a thousand dollars, you'll be healed of cancer. That kind of rubbish. Uh, yeah, it's it's horrendous. Uh, Joyce Myers, all kind. Ah, oh, look, I'm gonna start naming <laughs> people in a minute. But they, these 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 prosperity teachers make my life so much difficult with with these people because. Uh, People are, are, are comfortable in their own home, so they'd rather sit and watch rubbish on TV than come to church and hear the truth. And, uh, yeah, that is a difficulty that we have in, in this area, uh, an influx of prosperity churches. Talking about difficulties, I want to spend a little time talking about the struggles as a planter, as a, as a pastor, personal, the personal side. Mm. You've been very gracious giving us a window in a Middlesbrough, mm. and you've also been very gracious in giving me a perspective of your own struggles. Mm. Um, and I really want you to speak right now to the other um, pastor who's out there who is experiencing the hardship of planting in a in a, on a, in a difficult place. Um, so if you could just speak to that a little bit, share maybe a little bit of your own, your own struggles. Yeah. I mean, it was only December 2017. What is that? Three months from this conversation now that I was... Uh, on the internet looking at secular work, feeling that I'm a failure as a church planter. And that is something that comes up every six months. Uh, I invest my time and my life into people who uh, fall away. And do you know what? I think it's only fair and right that as planters, when your church is struggling, when people are falling away, that you, you question your, yourself. And do you know what? Often I question myself and I do see errors and sin in my life. Uh, but what I also see is after I've repented for the errors and sin in my life is that, do you know what, this is a hard gig that I've chose. <laughs> and that no matter how sanctified we become, no matter how much effort we put into, no matter how faithful we are, this is uh, a long, hard, dirty job. There's going to be pain, there's going to be suffering, but there's also going to be immense blessings. And I think we're so conditioned into looking at how the business world sees success that we get drawn into it ourselves our hearts are deceitful above all things our ego is immense I, I want to prove everyone wrong and say look what this daft council estate kid has done and so often my motivation for her successful church plant is about my kingdom and my glory that it, 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 it shames me but I, I've got to admit that you know what my ego takes over so often and unfortunately God has humbled me privately and not, not done it publicly and I've had time to repent and, and get on my knees and remember the reason I'm doing this is for the glory of God and for those souls that are destined for hell and, and my motivation has to be to be faithful to Jesus and for his glory and, and, and compassion for the lost and whenever that motivation changes to success for affirmation from man to affirmate whether it be Acts 29 or, or, or a pastor or your wife or whoever when your affirmation is based on anything else other than being faithful to Jesus that's when you're destined to fail and if we are happy realising the immense privilege we have to serve Jesus to be uh, servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to know that do you know what we've got one girl who got saved and if that girl is the only girl that has been rescued from the, from the depths of hell then praise Jesus 
that we've been fearful, that we've struggled, whether it be five years, 10 years, 15 years, we've seen somebody come to know Jesus, uh, receive his forgiveness and have the eternal hope of, of praising him forever. That's, that, that's what should excite us. And uh, I'm getting off on a little, <laughs> a little, a little rant, but it, I think the biggest problem for church planters, first of all, is their own ego. Uh, the, my, I'm speaking for myself here. I'm full of self-pity. Uh, I'm full of self-doubt, and and and, and, I, and I'm full of idols. And uh, it's only when I realise and remember who I'm serving that I get excited. And if we're not excited by the name of Jesus, then we're in the wrong job. <laughs> I appreciate your words, and I think your words apply not just to church planners, but mm-hmm. to to all of us who mm-hmm. have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So, um, just want to appreciate. Just say thank you for those words. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the blessings. Yeah. I know, I know, it all hasn't been bad. Yeah, yeah. it is a difficult place. It's a hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a place you grew up in. It's a place you, you feel like you're an addict in. You're, yeah. you're, 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 you're stuck here in a lot of ways, but your heart is here. Yeah. And I just want to hear from you the things that, that God has used to encourage you mm. along the way. Yeah, I mean, we, we give up a lot uh, to start off on this journey. But I was reminded that all we gave up was a few bits of furniture and a few bricks. <laughs> yeah, what we've given up, God has replaced uh, immensely. Uh, we've been blessed so much. We, we've got our own home now. We were renting. Uh, we, we've given up a, a rat race where we were chasing uh, things that the world could offer. And we've been blessed with spiritual things that only God can offer. And to know that you're part of someone's salvation is, even if your part was... Uh, setting out the chairs on a Sunday morning, somebody else preached and, and they got saved you and their sermon and not yours. You know what? We're just welcoming brothers and sisters uh, into our lives. Uh, to to see somebody who... Uh, it's hard because our church is so small. If we give a description of someone's salvation, it, uh, everyone knows who you're talking about. But we, we've seen people rescued, not just from hell, but from from a hopeless life on earth as well. Mm-hmm. And to see people confident in who they are in Christ, to see people who feel worthless, um, just realise that the made in the image of God is, is, is priceless. To see my children, uh, oh man, my kids are, are blessed beyond belief. They've got family uh, that are united by Jesus. We, we, we My wife lost so many children uh, when we were first married through through complications in childbirth and we, we must have suffered four miscarriages. Uh, we wanted a big family and couldn't have our own blood family. We've got two beautiful girls, but we've also got uh, a family that's growing in the in the church. Uh, and my kids love church. They love it, they're part of it. They go on ministry with us. Uh, we homeschool, so we have an opportunity to take them with us when we go out into the community. And uh, they've seen us poor, they've seen us rich. Uh, they've seen us cry, they've seen us rejoice, they've got a reality of, of of what it is to be a disciple, that, you know what, we're called to sacrifice at times. We're called to do so much other than just plant a church and create a congregation. Uh, we're called to model Jesus in our homes, and, and, uh, and I think the best thing about planting a church is our kids see that we are not, whether your kids are homeschooled or not, our children see... Uh, the tough times and they see blessing and they see the reality of what it means to be walking with Jesus and uh, I think that's been the biggest thing they've learned to sacrifice because they've had to open up their own home 
which was painful to start with. They felt like they were sharing the parents. But not only are they sharing the parents, they're gaining brothers and sisters. So what they saw as a loss, they're now seeing as a gain. Uh, they're growing so much and maturing. They're learning hospitality. Uh, they also get to meet great people from around the world, like yourself and your family. It's been awesome to have uh, you and Amanda and Mark and Desiree with us. That's absolutely awesome. And uh, we go up to Nidri in Scotland. And it's like we've got, uh, it's like a home from home. And uh, just being part of God's family, the sacrifices that we, we, we've we made uh, for our small family has meant we've been blessed by being part of God's huge family, global family. And uh, yeah, the blessings far outweigh the struggles and uh, yeah, the excitement and the joy that comes from these blessings far outweigh the sorrows. So it's, yeah, it's a tough gig, but it's, it's an honor and a privilege. And uh, yeah, it, I think it becomes tougher when you, you when you miss the blessings, when you focus on the struggles, when you remind yourself that you know what Jesus doesn't need me if <laughs> if it's too hard get out. Do you know what I mean? I'm here because I've been blessed and I'm chosen to be here. God doesn't keep us here against our will. He doesn't need us. Any any man can be used to do this work. It's a privilege, and when you remind yourself of that, it gives you that motivation to yeah, just to get out there and uh, smash the gospel for Jesus. <laughs> I appreciate the just the, the expression on your face, just just true joy in what you do. Um, is there some things that you would want to say to those who would who who are considering? Hey, how can I how can I know if I'm called? How can I know if this is something God would have me do? Mm. Work in work in planting churches in hard places. Mm-hmm. How how does somebody determine that? I mean, because and I, I'm going to use your own your own partner in crime Nathan he he didn't come from this area and that's kind of um, unique you would think that somebody's gonna be successful in this environment is Mm -hmm. gonna be indigenous as you already have stated Mm -hmm. but just because you're not doesn't mean God can't be calling you to work in a difficult place so what would you say to that person who's wrestling with they're calling, and I use that in a, in a very ministry sense, because I know today everybody uses calling for everything, yeah. but wrestling truly about possibly God calling them to ministry in, in church planning in difficult, difficult places. I think the first thing is, do you want to be anonymous? Because if you get into hard <laughs> church in hard places, church planting, you're going to be anonymous. If, if you want to be in the limelight, then don't choose churches in hard places. Uh, Nathan is a, is a humble man. He came to learn. Uh, this guy has academic ability. He could have chose a number of churches. He'd have been welcomed with open arms. He's a clever, able, gifted man. And he fits a mould of many middle-class churches. And uh, he, he, he looks a bit out of place in Middlesbrough. He, he rides down the street with a cycle helmet on, with bicycle clips on. People, he stands out like a sore thumb. He, he looks a lot like Prince Harry. Well, that's his name. Everyone calls him Harry, so <laughs> he even sounds like him. And, uh, yeah, this guy stands out just because he wears a bike. People don't wear helmets with motorbikes, never mind posh bikes. So, uh, yeah, he's courteous, he's polite, but he's courageous. And he is the same uh, with a drug dealer as he is with a politician. This man doesn't change. He's confident in Jesus, willing to learn, uh, knows his capabilities. And he, he's faithful to uh, God's church, uh, to his friends, uh, to me and to the community that he's living in and uh, this guy come uh, to serve and he came with humility but this man has also been shocked because 
he came knowing that uh, Middlesbrough wasn't going to be one in six months, but he thought it'd be done after three years. <laughs> He's into his third year now, and he re- realizing how tough it is. And uh, yeah, so if you feel you called into uh, ministry, do what Nathan did. He came and started at the bottom before he could preach. He had to clean the toilets, and if he if you're not willing to clean the toilets in hard places, then don't think you can preach because <laughs> if you can't serve, you can't preach because. Uh, Basically, you've got to earn respect from the local community. You've got to love them. You've got to get stuck in with them. And the majority of uh, what we do is relationship building. So we've spent five years building relationships. And it's only after those five years that we can uh, welcome people into the church, that people are willing to listen to what we have to say about Jesus because we've earned that respect on the street, uh, loving people, living with people, and spending time with people. What about those who are listening and saying, how can I help? Um, I mean, obviously... Churches like mine, we, we, we're looking for opportunities to get involved where God is moving. And here, God is clearly on the move. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that in a lot of ways. It's been made evident to me just in this visit. But, you know, there are multiple ways I know that you're thinking of, of people being able to interact with this ministry. You're not looking merely for checks uh, through the mail. You're not just looking for support. You keep telling me we're looking for partnership. Yeah. And so describe what partnership means to you. Yeah, so for me, I think a lot of churches think they're partners because they, they fire a check-off. And my dad used to fire a check-off to me once a year every Christmas, and that didn't make him a father. You know what I mean? He, he, he sent me a check. It, it didn't make me feel like a son, but I spent it. So if anyone wants to send us a check, we'll, we'll spend it straight away. We'll spend it. But if you want to be a partner with us or other churches in hard places, then... You can't see small churches struggling in hard places as beneficiaries, uh, the partners, the partners in the gospel. Uh, we describe ourselves as as uh, being poor financially but rich in God's blessings. We have gifted speakers, uh, gifted female gospel workers. We have knowledge and experience of working in a hard place that could be transferred into other hard places. And uh, we want to we want to send people out uh, to support the work that you were doing. We want to receive people who are going to support the work that we are doing. Uh, we tithe and we give money to small church plants. Uh, we feel that uh, we want our people to know that God provides for us and we want to be used by God to provide for others. We we aren't here just to receive. We want to give. We've got a heart for Jesus. We've got a heart for God's church. We've got a heart for the lost. And uh, there's plenty of ways we can support one another. And uh, I go up to Nidri Community Church. I preach regularly for them. I'm involved with the 20 Schemes uh, weekenders where they have teaching weekends. Uh, people come down to us. We receive people who are struggling in their environment from similar hard places. They'll come with us where they're away from temptation of their old friends and uh, family and they'll come and spend time with us and we send people to them. And That's the kind of relationship we want to do uh, across the Atlantic, across the world, where we, we, we can receive people where we'll train them, where they can come and practically learn how to apply the theology that they've learned into hard places. Uh, we want to send people to you so they can train and learn in a different context. And yeah, we want to be working alongside other churches, not just merely receiving gifts from them. But like I say, if you've got to check out there, <laughs> send it my way. <laughs> I don't think anybody's missed that. <laughs> What, what's the best way to, for them to reach you? Email, website? What, how would you want people to begin to explore your ministry? Yeah, my email is uh, ian at newlifeborough. That's uh, newlife, then B-O-R-O dot com. 
uh, or you can get me at, at Spud's Gun Preacher on Twitter and uh, or they can just contact you, Aaron, and I'm sure you will pass their details on to me or vice versa. If you weren't able to translate that, <laughs> just kidding. No, I, uh, I definitely have been blessed by this visit. Um, I know that we still have some days together ahead of us, um, but uh, I just wanted to say to those who are listening, I am really touched by what's happening here. And so if you're listening, be praying for the work here and uh, become a prayer partner. Yeah. And and if you're able financially, find a way to dig a little bit deeper in considering helping financially. If this might be somewhere you feel like God may be leading you, um, strongly consider the possibility of coming and do an internship here. So there's all kinds of avenues for people to begin to explore mm-hmm. the possibility of ministering. So with that, we'll say good day and uh, enjoy your week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.